When I was a, uh, a young pastor, I guess I should say younger, because I don't really think I'm that old. Uh, this was 25 years ago, in 1994. I remember our conference minister in Saskatchewan took a group of us young guys to uh, a leadership seminar conference in Edmonton uh, with John Maxwell. And, and I, I will never forget the one story John uh, t- told us young pastors as he was preparing us for some reality of church life, uh, that uh, there will be conflict that happens in the church and it's important uh, to be unified. So he, he, uh, he started out by saying that, I, I think it may have even been in one church that he pastored, but they were having a potluck after the service and there was a, a new family to the church that had just started attending and, and this woman had brought a dessert for the, to the potluck and uh, she brought it proudly into the kitchen to contribute to the meal and the fellowship. And the lady who was in charge of the kitchen uh, took one look in disgust at her dessert and said, we only use real whipped cream in this church. Yours has Cool Whip. And, and as she said it, she, she tipped the dessert into the garbage. The, the dessert slid off the plate into the garbage. <clears throat> So that church, uh, as with many, including ours, uh, could benefit from a little dose of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is where we land in our series this morning as we're going through this incredible letter that Paul wrote to this beautiful church who also had a few problems in unity. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it touches nerves this morning as we consider uh, what God has for us. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, thank you for your word and help us as uh, frail, broken, sinful humanity to understand um, who we are and what you, who you are and what you've done to remedy our selfish, uh, conceited condition. So Lord, uh, we need you. Our church needs you uh, uh, to, in order to display the kind of unity that you displayed for us to a lost world. So. Help us today as we go through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So as I said, Paul had really good things to say about this church. They were faithful partners in the gospel. He had a lot of reason to rejoice, but he also needed to address a few issues. It wasn't um, at the same level as his letter to the Corinthian church, but this church, as in all churches, was not perfect. In fact, you know, there's that saying, if you find the perfect church, please don't join it because you will ruin it. All right? (laughs) So we have to work hard at being gracious towards one another and striving towards unity. This, this church in Philippi had a few cool whip issues. <laughs> there was some division. I don't know where it started, but it could have been very well in the kitchen. You see, a church is a, is a spiritual family. It is. And like <laughs> Leona no, and Allie, no slight on you. You ladies are amazing, Okay. This has nothing to do with the central... Like, I'm, I'm talking now about the Chilliwack campus. Okay, They got issues over there. <laughs> but you see, the, the church is a spiritual family. It is. That the, there are many metaphors used for the church of who we are, the nature of the church, and one of them is that we're a family. And like any family, there are fights and disagreements. Or does that only happen in my family? I don't know. I'm just saying... I mean, put your hand up if you had a fight on the way to church this morning. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't, don't. You don't need to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have an argument with yourself? <laughs> okay. There, see? It even happens by yourself. And the approach Paul takes, to, uh, takes is to call for unity. To call to unity is to call each individual Christian in the family to humility, which is ultimately about who gets the glory. So we're striving for unity. The foundation of that is humility, and it's all about glory. So we're going to talk through this. And so the Apostle Paul presents a formula for unity in the church in this section of the letter. And you can, we'll see the formula or the calculation in verse 3, and we're going to spring from there and talk about the whole text. But in verse 3, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So Here's the formula. The word count that the apostle uses is literally, he's borrowing an ancient mathematical word meaning to calculate. We need to make a calculation. Um, I went into pastoral ministry, so I kind of missed the whole uh, algebra and and those kind of things. But I I actually love those classes because I found the formulas fascinating. If you implement them, they work. I didn't often know how they worked or why, but they do. So here's here's the formula. You add up the needs of others. Simple formula, subtract your self-interest, and that should equal what would benefit others most. And when we follow this formula, it is a really good solution to disunity in the church, especially when we act upon the result of that calculation and we put it into practice. So this church that John Maxwell (laughs) was talking about, I mean, the person in charge of the kitchen could have said, okay, add up the needs of others. This woman came needing fellowship, needing a place to belong, needing the love and support of of a church family, needing to grow in faith in Christ. So let's subtract our our own desire for real whipped cream. I mean, I, I love real whipped cream over cool whip too. But what would benefit this lady most in that situation? Having her dessert dumped in the garbage, which ultimately split the church? Or saying, glad you're a part of our day. And let's get to know one another better. And acting upon that. And this requires humility. 
even though the word humility is only used twice in this text, we see it in verse 3 and then again in verse 8. It is the virtue that is the central theme that runs through this entire text, and I would submit to you it is probably the core virtue of all of Christianity because it's so focused on the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to look at again. Unity requires humility, and humility requires humiliation. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of humiliation where you dump somebody's dessert in the garbage in front of the whole church. I'm talking about humbling yourself. Humbling yourself so that others may be exalted and ultimately Christ may be glorified. So to, to, to go through this, we're going to break down the text into three sections. We're going to talk about the foundation of humility, the fight for humility, and then the formation of humility in our lives. So number one, the foundation of humility, verses one and through. So one and two. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, let's just stop there. Uh, the word if, in, in, if you read multiple translations uh, of, of the Bible, you, some translations will say, so then, uh, or since, therefore, since you have encouragement in Christ, uh, and in Christ is also translated different ways. It is uh, sometimes translated united with Christ. So to be in Christ is to be united with him. So therefore, since you have this encouragement of being united with Christ, this is what Paul is saying. That's the foundation right there. Since you are encouraged because you are united with Christ, since you have received comfort from the love that he has shown you, since you have participated in the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God, since you've received his affection and his sympathy, complete my joy, the apostle said, by being of the same mind. Of the same mind. Unified. Uh, unified around Christ. Unified around what Christ has called us to do. Not unified around whipped cream. Unified around Christ and his mission. Hopefully whipped cream enhances that. As you know, I'm a foodie. And whenever, you know, I'm looking forward to the eternal kingdom of God, which is yet to come. It's already been inaugurated. But that's going to be, like the Bible says, it's, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're going to have some pretty awesome Greek food up there, Mediterranean stuff, don't you think? Olives, pita bread, lamb, Greek salad, feta cheese. I'm just saying. Hummus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a foodie, too. But that's not what, it, it enhances what we're centered on. Food enhances the gospel. It really does. It, it, food creates intimacy as you eat with people and get to know them. That's why I like it so much. It's, it's a relational thing. And, and, and so, uh, so, so Paul is saying, be unified, having the same mind, having the same love, the same kind of love that God loved us with, we should have for one another. He spoke, Jesus spoke about that lots when he was on earth, being in full accord and of one mind. You can't get it re repeated enough. Be of one mind, one mind, one mind, unified. And so Paul is about to give this church a couple of imperatives, commands in the, in the coming verses, verses three and four. But before doing that, he begins this beautiful, in this beautiful way of reminding them of who they are in Christ and the blessings they've received in the gospel. 
So C.S. Lewis, I'm going to quote him a few times in his book, Mere Christianity, he said this, trying to be like Christ, which is the goal of, for the Christian. Um, as the Holy Spirit does this work of sanctification in our hearts, we, by the power of the Holy Spirit and his work in us, we strive to be like Jesus. If, if we're calling ourselves Christians, that's, that's our goal. And, and, and C.S. Lewis says, trying to be like Christ is more like painting a portrait than like obeying a set of rules. So if the Christian life to you ever feels like a list, simply a list of do's and don'ts, that's not only an, an unhealthy place to be, but it certainly won't affect any change. Are there do's and don'ts? Absolutely. And we're going to get to a few. But Paul begins with painting a portrait of what, what we have received in Jesus, and that is foundational to living a life of unity in the church. Unity is, is rooted in humility, which is the core to the Christian faith, so much so that Paul didn't consider his joy complete. He had a lot of joy in these people, but it wasn't complete until this church was actively living out their faith in a unified way in all humility. Stephen Lawson, he said this, for the believer, humility is the most foundational of all Christian virtues. No one struts through the narrow gate that leads into the kingdom. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks. <laughs> Servants, not sovereigns. How many people in the church set themselves up as king? Jesus is the king. If Christ is to fill our lives, we must empty ourselves. If Christ is to increase, we must decrease. I think there's someone else who said that. His name was John. He baptized Jesus. <laughs> and John could have easily stolen... Now let me rephrase that. He could have tried to steal the glory of God as people came to him over and over again to be baptized. And what did John do? He continually pointed people back to Jesus. He's the one. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Repent. Believe in Jesus, in the, king, the coming kingdom of God. That's who you need to follow. That's who you need to follow. So one time Jesus told a parable, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is so foundational to our Christian faith that Jesus says even our very eternal destiny is at stake. Our justification is at stake. 
based on our response to the gospel and what Jesus expects of us. He warns self-righteous people who treat others poorly and look down at them that they've missed the point so much so that they were utterly lost. So the kingdom of God is referred to quite often as the upside-down kingdom where, uh, where God does and expects of us just the opposite of what the world would expect or what we would expect. So it's through being defeated by earthly powers that Jesus conquered the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and he inaugurated his kingdom. And it's in that kingdom where weakness becomes power. It's upside down. Where spiritual bankruptcy is wealth. (laughs) Where suffering leads to glory. Where we die to self in order to live for Christ. Where when we're empty, we're full. When we're last, we're first. And where the humble are exalted, where the low are brought high. So why does humility matter? Because humility is the way of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it is so foundational because humility is the only road that leads to life as we recognize our desperate need of a savior, our utter lostness, which points us to Jesus who has rescued us. That's why it's foundational. And the apostles, Peter and James, they, they iterate and they summarize really the, 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 uh, the words of so many biblical authors, old and new covenant, all into one statement, which simply says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be opposed by God. I think that's a dangerous place to be. But he gives grace to the humble. So after laying this foundation based on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, Paul now now gives us two negative imperatives. Don't do this. Each followed by a positive imperative. Do this. So the imperative is because sometimes we need a command. We need an imperative because humility does not come naturally. It's hard. It's a fight. It's a struggle. Uh, Paul also uh, had a fight. He struggled. If you go to the end of chapter 1, I think it's verse 30, he says, contend with me as I contend, as I fight, as I struggle. Not with all of you, church, but as I fight the spiritual battle of forces in the heavenly realms on on the basis of my position in Christ and as I contend for the gospel. That's our fight. So let's talk about the fight for humility so that can happen. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing. Here's the negative. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But, the positive, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The negative. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, positive, but also to the interests of others. So the Apostle James, in his section on humility... Uh, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, the Apostle Peter were all singing out of the same book. <laughs> but So the Apostle James begins his section on pride and humility by saying this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? There's the fight. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So the lack of and the need for humility is a fight. First, it's an internal one. And then, if not checked in our own lives, 
It becomes a fight with others, which is not where the fight belongs. But ultimately, James goes on to say that we fight with and we become enemies of God. And friends, when we try to fight God, we will never win. So we have to fight and battle selfishness, which is at the core of pride, which is the opposite of humility. The problem is, selfish people usually don't know that they're selfish because, well, they're selfish. (laughs) Right? So they need to be told. They need their eyes opened. They need truth spoken to in a loving way. And if that's me, friends, please come and tell me what the church is for. So selfish people are unable to see the other side, to consider others or see how their actions impact other people. So maybe you could write this down. There's two questions that I would like all of us to ask ourselves this morning. I'm already getting to some application, but we'll do it midway. Number one, how much do I think about myself? Just ponder on that this week. How much do I think about myself? Make a note of it. Write it down. See what percentage of your thoughts are consumed by me, myself, and I. Second question, how much conflict is there in my life? The negative conflict. Um may be that you find that the common denominator is you <laughs> or me. And, and that's a good litmus test is to figure out how much pride we have in our lives and how selfish we are. So C- C.S. Lewis states what this goal looks like in real life. Again, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays, I love C.S. Lewis's wording. He didn't pull any punches. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. See, that's not a humble person. Somebody who is always putting themselves down is not humble. In fact, that's another form of pride, really, because they're seeking attention and glory. Jesus told people straight up that he was the Son of God and that he had all authority and yet he was the most humble person on earth next to Moses. And Moses wasn't a pushover either. You see, meekness is not equated with weakness. Get that. Humility is, and meekness is, power and strength under control and under submission to God. So so don't go around beating yourself up because that's not humility. All right? Moving on. You've probably read the whole quote by now. Probably, is it on the screen? Yeah, okay. Probably all you will think about him, the humble person, is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. So if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's awesome. So other authors, Rick Warren, one of them picked up on C.S. Lewis' fantastic quote and they condensed it to this phrase. I think it's on the screen as well. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. 
It's thinking of yourself less. The Christian life is designed for humility, really. The cross tells us that all we bring to salvation is our sin. Prayer, which we're called to, puts us on our knees with empty hands and dependence on God. Worship causes us to look up to God in adoration and dependence on him. And the trials that we face, which we're called to, as we, Pastor Jason told us last week, suffering, remind us of our frailty and the power of God. So Christianity is designed for the humble life. Yet our hearts struggle to grasp the gospel and turn to God continually in prayer and worship and the recognition that he deserves in our trials. We still struggle with pride. Why? We've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Satan and Adam. <laughs> and if you read about uh, both of these individuals, Satan, Lucifer, once created as a, a beautiful angel by God who rebelled against God, pride was the issue. Adam, we in our fallen sinful nature, we tend to take, not give. We grasp at things and not easily give. Why? Paul goes on to say in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I'm going to talk about conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Conceit literally is translated glory empty. It's an, conceit is an empty kind of glory. And so when we take, take, take and not give, what we're really doing is seeking glory. And that's exactly what's, what Lucifer sought and that's what Adam sought, to be like God. But God will not be mocked and he will not share his glory with anyone. So now we're getting to the root where the root of disunity based on pride and lack of humility comes from an empty kind of glory that we're seeking which results in fighting and disunity. And ultimately, it's an issue of who gets the glory or not. That's the issue. That's another good question to ask ourselves behind those other two that I already asked. In, in my words and my actions and in my daily life, who is getting the glory? Is it me? Is it the enemy? Or is it God? Good question to ask. When we look for validation, friends, um, and by the way, we sang it this morning. Cecily, thank you for choosing such fantastic songs for this text because one of the, it just caught me as we were singing, and I hope this is a prayer that we can take with us this week. Turn my eyes from searching for lesser glory. So much of what we search for is just so empty. We look for validation and approval and significance with people and with things. We look to our spouse or marriage, to our friends, to our boss. We look to our job, even volunteering. We look to social media likes when we get so many thumbs up our hearts, we feel good. We look to how many times people retweet our messages. We look to money, possessions. We look to so many things other than God. I do it. And when we don't give him the glory, it leaves us empty and hungry. And they say the most dangerous time to go shopping at the grocery store is when you're hungry. And that's true because you won't stick to the perimeter and get the milk and eggs and vegetables. 
You'll go to the middle and you'll search those aisles for the chips and the cookies, the junk. Because when we don't fill up on nutrition, we eat junk, which leads to problems. It leads to vain conceit, further selfishness, destructive pride, and ultimately leaves us so dissatisfied, miserable, and graceless. So if that's you this morning, can I encourage you? Pursue God, and when you pursue him, you will find the kind of satisfaction that will lead you. It'll lead you to, and it will lead you in his grace, and it will spill over to an incredible grace for other people. So to show us how this is possible, Paul had no better example to give to this church than to show them the humility and exaltation of Jesus. So this is where we want to land as we finish. Let's talk about the formation of humility. And verses 5 through 11, before the Apostle Paul put them to pen and paper, I didn't know this till this last week, but it was actually, um, these verses were actually a song that had been sung in the early church. And Paul was actually just putting it down on paper and reminding them of, of, of what they were based on and all about. I, I think the song was probably written by Hillsong or Elevate or something like that, and it went like this. Versus, you can laugh, that was a joke. <sighs> Work with me. Okay, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, they sang this in the early church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Remember, yes. Remember I said this is an issue of glory and here's the proof. So instead of giving us all, you know, five tips to a greater life of humility, let's just simply look at how Jesus emptied himself and how he was exalted and I think that's more than enough for us uh, to live by this week. So where Adam was made in the image of God, Jesus was and is the very essence of God. Where Adam wanted to be like God, Jesus took on the likeness of man. Where Adam wanted to exalt himself, Jesus emptied himself. Where Adam was discontent on being God's servant, Jesus assumed the form of a slave. Where Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience, Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Where Adam succumbed to temptation, Jesus overcame temptation and crushed the tempter. Where Adam brought the curse on the world, Jesus took and became the curse for the world. Where Adam was condemned and disgraced, Jesus was exalted by the Father. And in Jesus, we see the greatest display of humility ever. No one ever started so high and descended so low. No one ever gave up more. And no one ever humbled themselves more than Jesus, because unity to bring us together as a family requires humility, the humility of Jesus. 
And humility requires humiliation, which means a humbling or a lowering of self. I remember one time as a younger pastor, <laughs> very much learning, as I always am, <laughs> I prayed one time publicly for God to humble us as a church. And uh, an older saint in the church came up to me and said, Eldon, please don't pray that. He said, because God is faithful, he answers prayer, and when he has to humble us, you, he'll do it. And he'll do it in a way that we're not going to appreciate. So why don't you rather pray, God, give me the strength to humble myself. After all, what did Jesus do? In Philippians it says, he humbled himself. This is the self-humiliation that we should all put ourselves through. So there's, I think there's going to be a little uh, graphic on the screen that talks about the downward progression and the upward exaltation of Jesus. It's called the kenosis. It's the emptying of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, so Paul starts with Jesus at the highest level in pre-existent glory. He, he was asserting the full deity of Jesus. God, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form is the incarnation. Jesus added to his person a human nature without surrendering, surrendering any of his divine attributes. But he became one of us. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't clutch uh, and cling to his rights as the king of glory. He didn't grasp at power instead if he relinquished it in order to serve us. And he took the form of a servant. And, 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 uh, and the word used here in Philippians is, as, is of a bond slave. This was the lowest form and status of humanity at this time. It wasn't just a servant who had some rights and some latitude. A slave had none. They belonged to their master. They owned no personal property. They had no life of their own apart from the will of the master and Jesus assumed the form of a slave. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. What, what uh, the apostle John declared, who the apostle John declared and Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life is the one who breathed his last and died. Death, even on a cross, Paul said. The cross represented again the rock bottom and the most stunning aspect of Jesus' obedience because crucifixion, death on a cross, was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was so despised as Romans, they wouldn't even crucify themselves like other Romans. Didn't do it. As a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. The, the Jews so despised the cross that they believed the person was cursed if they hung on the cross. It was brutal, shameful, and painful. And the God of the universe was stripped naked and hung on a cross as a spectacle for the city to mock and abuse. And more than that, not only did he hang there, but at the same time he bore the full wrath of God in the place of sinners like me and like you he bore our sin on that cross. Can you imagine what Jesus did for you and for me? The ultimate undercover boss. Anybody ever watch that show? Love that show. The CEO, 
the most powerful person in an entire organization, sometimes multinational or global, went undercover to become a janitor or a cashier running the drive-thru at a fast food restaurant or whatever, being the stock boy. Nobody knew who they were. They were disguised well. And along the way, discovering what this entity, this organization that they were in charge of was all about, all of its foils and frailties and dysfunctions so that they could address the need. And along the way, made friends with two or three people, often having great needs financially or in their family or whatever, and the boss at the end would reveal himself to them say, it's me, and they're stunned. And, and, the, and the boss would say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to put you through school. I'm going to give you a raise. I'm going to make you a manager. I'm going to pay off your house. And this Jesus, who became a slave and washed the feet of his disciples, said, I've given you an example that you should do the same. And this Jesus who bore our sins on the cross said, take up your cross and follow me. And here in our text, Paul says of this progression of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we need the gospel to fill this glory emptiness that is inside of us. To break the cycle of living like Adam, we need the second Adam, which is Jesus, because it's only in his death and resurrection his life, his death, his resurrection that we find forgiveness and new life and empowerment to live the kind of kingdom life that he wants, this kind of life, the upward progression. Highly exalted, God resurrected Jesus from the dead and exalted him above all things that at the name of Jesus every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, amazing. It's, there's two things we learn from this entire song here. Number one, that there is no one else exalted like Jesus, so let's not even try. Second is, no one is exalted by God, whether in this life or in the life to come, without truly humbling themselves before him through Christ and as Jesus did. Because God opposes the proud, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in Christ, we are God's treasure. We don't need the approval of other people if we have it from God. We don't need to be noticed when we've been seen and accepted by God. <laughs> Nothing else will satisfy that glory-empty void until we get it right in Jesus. And when we do that, it allows us to humbly serve others. So there's a story, as we conclude here this morning, about a rice farmer in China, who had a real problem on his hands. And uh, every day when he went to water his rice field, which was a tier above his neighbor, below him, he noticed that his water would drain out unusually <laughs> quickly into his neighbor's field, who was redirecting the water onto his field so he didn't have to do any work. And this was irritating this rice farmer who was a Christian who took the problem to his church and asked the elders of the church to, to pray with him because he was getting so upset that his neighbor was treating him this way. So 
they prayed and the elders came back to him with this solution. And they said, water your neighbor's field first. Just do it. And he's doing the work anyway twice, right? So do his first. So that week, he got up every day and he watered his neighbor's field first. And then he watered his own. No more problem. In fact, the neighbor, so taken with this, went and visited him, said, if this is the way that Christians live their lives, I want in. And that man gave his life to the Lord because of the humble, the humility of this rice farmer. So as we close, we're going to pray a prayer. And I want to let you know that this prayer is for me because interesting timing this week. (laughs) There's two situations going on in my life, one for me, one for us. Two, two separate situations, and I really do think it's a spiritual attack. We've made this decision to come to Agassiz to engage in the mission more intentionally, and all of a sudden, we're having some problems. And I'm not going to get into details, but one of them involves, both involve very nasty words, some slander, some personal attacks, which I personally am okay with in the one situation. But I'm not okay for the reputation that it gives the church because it doesn't do anything to glorify God. And the other one is just something we have to figure out how to relate to somebody who's in our neighborhood. So please pray for us. I need this prayer. Philippians chapter 2 is so applicable to our lives in this very moment. Is it for any of you? Is there anything that you're struggling with today where you say, I need to take the the humble way of Jesus in this situation? We know that, but we just don't know how. Being honest with you, we don't know how in this situation, so we need your prayers. So stand with me. If you want to pray this, if you don't, silently listen, but we're going to pray the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Don't know if he actually wrote it, but it's been attributed to him. So Cecily and team, why don't you come up and join me? We'll pray this and then we'll worship as we leave. So the prayer goes like this. Let's stand together. Just follow along with me if you want. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.